You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, hey, we're walking through the book of Acts, right? And uh, we're carrying on in our series. Pastor Cam's away studying in Israel. We've all seen his Instagram on the scooter. <clears throat> I guess that's one way to get around. No, he's having a, they're, they're actually having a great time over there. I think there's like four pastors left on, on or here. Uh, but we're going to carry on in our story on Acts. And just as a reminder, Acts is a story of the early church. Uh, it takes place in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And the book of Acts is a description of what happens when the Spirit of God falls upon all those who put their faith, put their hope, their trust in the person of Jesus Christ, and all that he means in his life, death, and resurrection. And it is a story of how God is in the business of transforming lives. He's still in the business of transforming lives. And it challenges us to align our lives with the author of life, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at a story today, which is one of my favorite stories. It involves the apostle Philip. And Philip is known as Philip the Evangelist, and for good reasons. Because we encounter Philip in in chapter 8 doing what? Evangelizing. Now, I know that in our culture, the word evangelism is a bit of a swear word. uh, Because it conjures up all sorts of images, you know, of, you know... uh, a sweaty, maybe from the deep south kind of person going, you need to believe in Jesus. Jesus, right? And, you know, that kind of evangelism. But evangelism actually means telling people the good news. It's actually in the word itself, telling people the good news of Jesus, right? And so Philip was really good at this, apparently, He's, uh, he's sharing about Jesus, and he's sharing about Jesus in, in pretty difficult circumstances. Uh, we read um, that he, while, while he's sharing the gospel, there's a lot of pressure against the church. There's a fellow named Saul who's actually doing a real number on the church. He's, he's, round, he's, he's got, you know, he's got some muscle with him, and they're rounding up uh, church uh, leaders and arresting them and, and torturing them. And, and when we read in the, in the last chapter, in chapter 7, about one of the, the key leaders in the church, a guy named Stephen, who actually is killed for his faith, for, for evangelizing. Even in Acts chapter 8, the chapter we're going to be looking at today, we read these words in, in verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so the context is it's, it's, it's a dangerous time to be a Christ follower, let alone being an evangelist. But one of the cool things that I see in this passage is in verse 4, it says, it says this, Now those who were scattered, because everybody's running, running for it, but they kept, wherever they went, they kept preaching the word. They kept telling people about who Jesus is. And so despite the dangers, they keep telling people that Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. And Philip is one of those guys. And we read about him in chapter 8 going down to Samaria and proclaiming to the people there about who Jesus is. And everything's going well. 
Everything's going well. Philip is preaching. He's telling people about Jesus. People are excited. People are hungry to hear the news about who Jesus is. And in the midst of all this, Philip gets a message. He gets a message from, we read, an angel of the Lord. And out of the blue, he has a new assignment. And this is what we're going to be looking at today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to begin in verse 26. Okay, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. In honor of God's word, let's stand together as I read this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south. We'll talk about that, that phrase. It could also mean rise and go at noon. You'll see that in your notes and in, in, in your Bibles. Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and, the, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, quote, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of, of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on, went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. And he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Lord, this is your word. You're not a worldview, you're not a philosophy, but you are personal and you are present with your people this morning. And so speak to us, we pray. Lord, give us ears to hear from you. Soften hard hearts, and then grant us courage to respond to whatever you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, in this passage, Philip, he gets this new call. Now, on one hand, this call that is placed upon Philip may have seemed a, a little disappointing. Now, I'm speculating, but we do know that back in Samaria, there was a lot going on. We read that, you know, Philip is, is, is sharing about Jesus to a lot of people, and lives are being transformed through his preaching and teaching ministry. Everything seems to be going well, but he receives this call from an angel of the Lord and says, Go, rise and go. 
And a lot of commentators have been pointing out that it's, it, it, it technically says rise and go at noon, not to the south, at noon. So he's being told to go to this place at noon. And so it's pretty specific time-wise, but it's a strange time to go somewhere. Typically at noon on this particular road, very few people would be traveling ministry. Leave where all the action is and go to this desert road, we read. A desert road. At a time when hardly anyone would be traveling because of the heat of the day. And this call just seems a bit strange. It seems a bit odd. What God is telling Philip to do makes little sense. I mean, Philip could say, hey... Look at the work I'm doing in Samaria. Like, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of work to be done. And now you want me to travel down some dusty, deserted road at a time when nobody is around because it's hotter than a Soyuz in the summer. This is what you want me to do. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I can see the sun in some of your eyes. You're like, a, yeah. Now, let's pause here just for a moment. I think we need to be reminded that sometimes God's call in our life doesn't always make sense. Maybe to ourselves or to those around us. I remember reading about uh, um, a man named Henry Nouwen. Has anybody heard of Henry Nouwen? He's a, a Catholic uh, priest, writer, thinker. Um, died in 1996, and um, Henry Nouwen was, uh, he was a professor at, uh, a tenured professor apparently, at Harvard, and quite well known, and uh, he had written a number of books, quite uh, popular, he, he would lecture to, to sold out, not to sold out, but to, to, to full lecture halls, um, he would be on the circuit speaking around the world, and so he's at Harvard, he's a tenured professor at Harvard. And in the midst of this, God calls him out of this to go work um, in, in Toronto at uh, this ministry called Daybreak Ministry, Larsh Ministries, um, which works with adults who are, um, who are severely um, handicapped. And so he leaves this position and everybody around him was like, what are you doing? This makes no sense. You're leaving this possibility. You're leaving being able to teach influencers, Harvard students. You're leaving this to go take care of, in particular, one adult male, a guy named Adam. Why would you do that? It makes no sense. And then here's the point, I think. Sometimes God's call in our lives doesn't always make sense. He often calls us to say something or to do something or to go somewhere that not only seems strange to us, but to people looking at you, they're like, man, what are you doing? So why does God call us to do strange things at times? Well, first off, I have no idea. I don't know why he does this. Uh, we don't know the mind of God. There's a guy in the 17th century, a guy named Pascal. He says, the heart has reasons which 
reason does not know. But we do know sometimes when we do things that, you know, in some ways seems kind of absurd, kind of strange. What does it require from us? Faith. It requires, okay, God, if you're in this, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. <laughs> Everybody's shaking their head, but I'm, I've discerned that this is what you're calling me to do. And, and we actually have lots of help in Scripture because there's lots of stories of, of God calling people to do some pretty things. Abraham, leave your home and go. Oh, okay, where? To the place that I'll show you. Ah, oh, thanks. You know, that's, that's, that's really helpful, God, to the place you'll show When? When you get there. Oh, thanks again. Um, you know, Moses, you know, he's with the people of Israel and they're up against the sea and there's an army bearing down on them. What do I do? What do I do? Well, what you do is you stretch out your hand over the sea. Okay. Take your staff. Okay. And why would I do that? There's an army coming. But you do this, right? You know, God calls us to do things. And maybe down the road we'll have an idea why. Like, I always think about it. Like, I always think about this fellow who was instrumental in leading me to Jesus. Because I, I didn't grow up in the church. I was an atheist. I had no interest in God whatsoever. And when I was living overseas, God led this fellow, this American fellow, to reach out to me. And to share the gospel with me. And I wasn't really interested. And, but the thing is, he could have just continued to work with the students that he was working with and have much more fruit, but he decided to reach out to me, which in some ways on the outside at the time didn't make sense because I wasn't interested. I had no interest in what he was saying. And I love Philip's response, though. God says, rise and go, and we read that Philip rose and went. I think it's a pretty powerful picture of obedience. So, let me ask you that awkward question that's in the air right now. And the awkward question is this. What are you discerning God is calling you to say or do right now in your life? Now, some of you know. And some of you, your response is like, yeah, but it doesn't make sense. But I'm, I, I, I'm sensing, I'm discerning that this is what God is calling me to do. What's he calling you to do? Okay, I'm going to leave that awkward question with you. Um, Philip, he rose and went to a desert road at the heat of the day, the time when nobody, nobody travels and none of it made sense because we're just walking on this road. Oh, this is really good. This desert road in the heat of the day. Nobody's going to be on here. But what does he see? He sees a chariot. He actually sees something. And we read that in the chariot there was a man. And this man is an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, when it says Ethiopian... It, it, it implies an, uh, uh, an area much larger than what we think of the country of Ethiopia. The kingdom in the first century would actually include huge areas of Sudan and other parts of, of Africa south of Egypt. And so it's interesting 
In the first century, Ethiopia, this, this region, was considered by the, by, by, by the Roman world, was considered the ends of the earth. Yeah? Where Jesus is called, the gospel is going to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and to get there, to get to Ethiopia, to get to this area, uh, it was not easy. It would take many, many months of traveling. You'd have to switch, get onto a boat on the Nile, and, 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 and uh, it would be a long journey. And so we've come across this Ethiopian eunuch. He's riding in a, in a chariot, being pulled by oxen most likely. We know that um, he was a eunuch who was employed in the court service of the queen who was known as Candace, essentially the ruler of the kingdom, as they explain it. Um, but from a Jewish perspective, what it meant is the eunuch was forbidden entry into the temple of God. We read about that in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. But we also read something quite interesting. Um, in the book of Isaiah, which is interesting because this is the book that he's reading, we come across uh, a pretty interesting um, prophecy and in, in the book of Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 56, verse 3, we read these words. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast to my covenant, who, inha who inhabits eternity... His, his name is... Actually, I just skipped a page. <laughs> like, that didn't make sense. Uh, hold fast to my covenant. There we go. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Interesting. So we learn this fella, okay, he's an Ethiopian eunuch, but we also know that he's he's pretty high-level official. Um, he's the official of the royal treasury. And the other thing we know about him is that he owns a scroll of scripture, which is not, they're, they're not like a dime a dozen in the first century. It would cost a significant amount of money. And we learn that he's reading the scroll. And he's reading part of the Jewish scriptures, the book of Isaiah, right? He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. So, what we have seen so far is we find Philip the Evangelist given the absurd call to leave a flourishing ministry, head to a place that is deserted, that is hot, at a time when nobody travels. And lo and behold, he encounters a God-fearing African official on his way home from Jerusalem. This official just happens to be reading a passage which will turn out to be introducing him to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Then Philip gets a second command. God says, go over. The Spirit of God says, go over to the chariot. And usually a, a, an ordinary person should, would never approach a person of the status of the Ethiopian eunuch. But he does so because the Spirit tells him to. And because it's an ox-drawn chariot, it's easy to catch up to. You can pretty much catch up to an ox-drawn chariot. It was slow. And so when he comes up to the chariot, he listens and he hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading. Now, after in the ancient world, when you read, you read aloud, right? 
The idea of reading, this is just a, a historical geeky thing that I want to tell you about because it's just fun. Um, in the ancient world, you would always read aloud. You would never read in your head. Can you imagine going to a library in the ancient world? Right? It'd be quite loud, right? No, just, just because it's fun and history is fun. One of the first persons to ever read in his head was a guy named Ambrose of Milan, who was influenced a guy named Augustine. And people thought Ambrose was strange because he thought, hey, why read aloud? I can just read in my head. And people looked at him and said, what's he doing? He's reading in his head. So anyhow, he's reading aloud. That, that has nothing to do with this message. It's just kind of a geeky, fun thing. Um, Philip recognizes what he's hearing, and he asks the Ethiopian, he asks him a question. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And I love the Ethiopian's response. He goes, well, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And he invites him on board. So what is he reading? Well, we know that he's reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Now, that's a significant chapter, Isaiah 53, because Isaiah 53 is all about what? Anybody know? All about Jesus, that's right. <laughs> and in specifically, it is about the servant, the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord. And so this is quite a famous prophetic passage that in the early church, saw, they, they saw this as pointing to Jesus. Because you read in... Um, in Isaiah 53, in the larger context, as we read in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that this, this mysterious servant would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a context. This is a context of, of, uh, of what the, um, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading. But he doesn't know. Who is this servant? Who is this person? Is it the prophet? Is it meaning Israel? What is going on? And so one of the, the things we need to know is that Jesus himself saw himself as a fulfillment of this servant. And of course, so did the early church. So talk about an opportunity to tell this fellow about Jesus. And Philip, given he's Philip the evangelist, took advantage of, of telling him about Jesus. Now, in all of this, you have to stand back and say, can you not see God's hand at play? Right? You see God orchestrating this whole thing. And then we read in, in verse 35 that Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And Philip moves the Ethiopian from the text that he was reading to the good news of who Jesus is. And we're not sure. We're not sure how much what he said. But he must have taught him a fair amount. And I wonder, I wonder because it's not that far away, I wonder if he also told him about Isaiah 56 and the prophecy about the, you know, the, the hope for eunuchs, right, in, in, that, in that prophecy. I wonder. The gospel had reached the ends of the earth. Now, he, he certainly knows enough because he has a good idea of the entire gospel because what is the Ethiopian's response? Let's get baptized. There's, there's some water. Why don't I... 
so somewhere along the line, Philip must have explained what baptism and all that means, right? And Philip seems satisfied that the eunuch was ready to be baptized, stops the chariot, both get out. Philip baptizes the eunuch. Right after the baptism, strange thing happens. The spirit whisks Philip away. Um, the eunuch, he's like, well, I'm, I'm still happy, right? <laughs> he goes home rejoicing. And his life has been transformed. So that's the story. So what comes out of this story? I think a few things. What do we walk away with? Well, one, and we've talked about this, we need to listen and take risks. Sometimes what God is calling us to do seems absurd, but we need to have faith that he's in this. And usually what's going on is God's hidden wisdom is being revealed. The other thing is you need to rest in the fact that if God is ahead of you in this, you're, you're, you're on, on pretty safe ground. Or you're on solid ground. It may not be safe, but you're on solid ground. And so I find that helpful because if, like when I walk into a Starbucks to talk to somebody and they have questions about faith, I find it very comforting to know that the Holy Spirit is long ahead of me on this. And so what I say, and if I, even if I don't say it, see, my friend, um, when, I was, when I was living overseas, again, I wasn't interested in, in, in Christianity. But a few years later, I bumped into the same guy again. And he tried to tell me about the, the Bible, and he tried to tell me about Jesus. I wasn't super interested. But then he gave me a book. And he just picked this book. And he gave it to me. And the book was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the beginning of Mere Christianity begins with Lewis asking the question, is there such a thing as goodness? And if goodness exists, where does it come from? I mean, that's just Lewis's starting point. He begins, you know, just very slowly. Now, what he didn't, what my friend didn't know is that was precisely the question I was asking. Through a series of circumstances going on in my life, I was wondering, is good simply good for me or is there something good that's outside of me? And if so, where does this come from? That was the question I was asking. My friend did not know that when he gave me this book. And so, again, God is on the front foot. And we can trust in that. The other thing that I think comes out of this passage, which I think is important, is that you and I need to ask questions. <laughs> That's what Philip does with the Ethiopian. We begin where people are at and lead them to where they need to go. And I find as Christians, too often, we are answering questions that nobody is asking. <laughs> Which is problematic. We need to be attentive to the questions of our age. The serious questions that people are asking. So what are the questions people are asking? I actually want to hear from you. I'm not just, just throwing that out there. What, what are some of the questions that people in our, in our society are asking? Go ahead. Human sexuality? Yeah, human sexuality might be a question on people's mind. Yes, it's a big question, yeah. Is there life after death? Is, 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 is this all there is, right? Why is there so much suffering if God is so good? Anything else? I mean, those are big enough, but... 
how can you say that there's only one way to God? I think that's a big question. Do you honestly believe in hell? There's a lot of questions that people are asking. And so we need to understand that. And we need to be really good at asking questions. And, and again, as, as, as followers of Jesus, we need to ask questions and not just come bombarding with what we think is the answer. The other thing that comes out of this passage is the importance of Scripture. The Ethiopian is reading Scripture. He's reading the book of Isaiah. And the Bible is key. Uh, my, friend, my same friend who gave me Mere Christianity actually gave me a Bible for the third time because I threw out the first two. <laughs> um, but I finally kept this one. And, and, and it spoke to me. And I love what uh, Chuck Colson says about the Bible. Uh, Chuck Colson, you'll know about him. He's, uh, maybe you've heard of him. He was, he was a key guy in the Watergate scandal. Um, went to prison. He was uh, Nixon's hatchet man. Went to prison, but in prison, read the Bible and his life was radically transformed. And this is what he says. He says, the Bible, banned, burned, beloved. More widely read, more frequently attacked than any other book in history. Generations of intellectuals have attempted to discredit it. Dictators of every age have outlawed it and executed those who read it. Yet soldiers carry it into battle, believing it more powerful than their weapons. Fragments of it smuggled into solitary prison cells have transformed ruthless killers into gentle saints. The Bible is a dangerous thing to read. It can transform your life. The other thing that comes out of this is the focus. The focus is always Jesus. The focus is Jesus. That's what Philip. Philip pointed him to the reality of Jesus. And so we point people not to be believing God. <laughs> Maybe that's a step along the way. But my goal is not to say, hey, God exists. My goal is to point you to the reality of Jesus. Right? Because we're not deists. We're not theists. We're Christians. And Christ is in our name. And so my goal is not to point you to some doctrine well, even a doctrine of creation or a doctrine of this or a doctrine of... My goal is to point you to the person of Jesus. And then we work our way out from that. And the other thing is, is in this passage is there's a response. Should I not be baptized? Should I not respond to what I've just read? And I think that's really important is we invite people, if we share with our friends, with our neighbors their family members, about who Jesus is, invite a response. I remember talking to this one guy. I shared, you know, I was telling him about Jesus. And the guy goes, yeah, I'm not really interested. When all of a sudden I go, no, I, I don't really, uh, whatever. And I said, okay, I, I get it that maybe you're not interested. But if Jesus is who he says he is, there's pretty serious implications. So you can say no. You can say no to Jesus. I get that. He honors that. You can say yes. But don't be indifferent. Because if he is who he says he is, then it's going to make all the difference of your life. Now you can say no. You can say, I want to be in charge of my life, and that's okay. But you can't be indifferent. In this case, what, what was the response? It was baptism. And so notice, an integral part of being a Christian is being baptized. 
Because when you're baptized, you're saying to the seen and the unseen world that your life is aligned to Jesus Christ. And there's no Christian life without being baptized. <laughs> it's not really an option. Well, what about the thief on the cross? Was he baptized, David? Huh? Well, no. But it would have been a little difficult to get down when you're nailed to a cross. Right? Where you read in Scripture about baptism, it seems to be pretty important. And it tells us it's really important. So, last week, did you guys have a baptism here? Yeah? At the lake? Who was baptized? Was it here? Well, very cool. Very cool. Well, there you go. So, just talk. <laughs> talk to her after. But, it, and... and yeah, not to put you on What was it like? It was awesome. It was awesome, wasn't it? Oh, wow. Yeah, Well, and so cool of you. To, and to say to the seen and the unseen world, I align my life with Jesus in deep as dark as Port Moody. I mean, this, it's, it's, I mean that, that, that's amazing. I remember I was, I was baptized in the ocean in December. <laughs> Whose dumb idea was that? But I do remember going under just saying, this is, this, it, was, it, was, it was so powerful. And there's something about saying to the seen and the unseen world that you belong to Jesus. So I would encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, to consider being baptized. If you want to know how, go talk to Pastor Nathan. He'll tell you. Okay, last thing in this passage. I noticed something interesting about this passage. When you're reading this passage, when I was reading it, for, for those of you who are... When I'm reading it, what came to mind was a story that we read about in Luke 24 where um, you had two guys on the road to Emmaus. And somebody comes up, and it turns out it's Jesus, and, and as they're walking, they say, yeah, we don't... We, doesn't make sense. We thought Jesus was the Messiah, but then he was killed. And then we heard rumors that maybe he was alive again. And, and what does Jesus say? Jesus helps them understand. He helps them understand what the scriptures say about him. How the entire Old Testament pointed to him. Right, very similar. Same author. Luke wrote both, right? Acts and, and, and the book of Luke. And, but then it's very interesting because at the end of um, Luke 24, you get this story of Jesus going along with these two guys. They invite him for dinner. They come for dinner. And he takes bread and he breaks the bread. And as he breaks the bread, he's whisked away. But then you read these words. The guys are rejoicing. They go back um, to tell everybody else about what they had seen. But then there's this interesting line that says, Jesus was known in the breaking of the bread. And so here you have, I think, two parallel passages. One at the end is you got Jesus is known in the breaking of the bread. And this one, at the very end, you get a picture of Jesus as known in baptism. And you get the two sacraments. You get, you get the Lord's Supper and you get baptism, both pointing to the reality of who Jesus is. Anyhow, I, I think it was, there, there's an interesting parallel there. Um, because baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are sacraments in the church. They are markers of the church. They, they are badges we wear to declare to the world who we are and whose we are, who we belong to. And so what I'd like us to do is, is to respond 
Uh, we Maybe not baptism, but we can take the Lord's Supper together. So I'm going to invite communion service to come forward at this point. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then I'll, I'll, I'll lay out how, what this is going to look like. All right, so let's pray first. Jesus, we thank you that you're known in the breaking of the bread. We thank you that when we take this bread, we're declaring to the seen and the unseen world that we belong to you, that we are your body, and that you are our head. And then when we take this juice, we're reminded that we are who we are, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because of your amazing grace, your shed blood on the cross that has forgiven our sins, that has set us free, that has given us eternal life, that has transformed our lives. We're never alone that you are now with us and you guide us and you direct us, even into things that may to the world seem strange, but we trust you in this. And so we pray, Lord, as we take this bread and we take this juice, that we would proclaim that we belong to you and that you would be lifted high. And when we take this bread and we take this juice, we are saying we want to follow you wherever you lead us. And so we pray for your guidance. We pray for, for your presence. We, we, we trust in the fact and we have courage in the fact that you are always on the front foot and that you go ahead of us into conversations that we have to have or that we are going to have with friends, family, and neighbors. Grant us the same courage and the willingness that we see in Philip. May that uh, reflect in our own lives as well. That's our desire. We commit our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash rail city to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the Rail City campus of CA Church.